and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the strikingly young, judiciously hip, and conspicuously lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 26. All right. Zach wants us to bring up that yesterday, Tuesday, was his birthday. It was. (laughs) Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome to the second half of your 20s. Yeah. I I can still say mid-20s, though, right? No, or is I'm, gonna say I'm 20 and half. still saying Are you, you're definitely late 20s. <laughs> I'm 29 and I'm still saying early Mid-20s. 20s. So. <laughs> <laughs> and on your birthday, you got the best present of all. I did. It was a snow day. So <laughs> our offices were closed, which meant our normal recording time. So we were supposed to record yesterday uh, and we would have had this leads in great to our next question, which yes. is uh, what's on tap, Zach? we're having coffee this morning because instead of drinking in the afternoon, we're recording at nine in the morning on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And so um, would have been poor form to be drinking whiskey at this hour. <laughs> so we're drinking coffee. So cheers to that. Cheers. And of course, Zach's is like super fancy looking. It's just really tall. because I, I need a big, big Ashley cup and I are just whatever caffeine is in, yeah. our, in front of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Who are we talking to, Olga? This week, we're talking with Maggie Van Dorn. She is the host and executive producer of Deliver Us, which is the, a new podcast produced by America Media and Spoke Studios. And it's about the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Yeah, and Maggie, so she was raised Catholic um, and has a background studying religion. Um, and when the second round of the stories about sex abuse broke this summer, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, um, the allegations against former Cardinal McCarrick, she, uh, like a lot of us, had a lot of questions and was really feeling challenged about her Catholic identity at that point and so decided to do something about it. Yeah, so she put together all of her resources and st- trying to get some answers. She talks with experts, advocates, and survivors about what the church and Catholics can do to move forward in this crisis. Yeah, so this podcast will have launched by the time you hear this. It launches on Wednesday, February 13th. uh, And so we are super excited to talk to Maggie about the making of it um, and what she hopes it achieves. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story is from Pope Francis's flight back from the United Arab Emirates, where uh, on the plane he was asked by journalists about um, reports of of the abuse of nuns uh, by priests and bishops. And this was significant because this is the first time that um, a pope and Pope Francis has acknowledged that sisters are abused by priests and bishops. Yeah, I was surprised that that was the case because mm-hmm. it seemed like we th- this was getting a lot of media attention. The New York Times was covering it um, and the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. They thanked which they're the largest U.S. organization of women religious around the world. They thanked the pope for drawing attention to the abuse that has been happening for quite some time. Yeah. And they hope that it doesn't just like end with acknowledgement, which Pope Francis, he did say that this is an issue that the Vatican has been working on and will continue to work on. Um, But the women hope that one, this leads to decisive action from the Vatican and two, that it um, encourages more women religious to come forward with their stories, because this this is not something that's uh, delegated to the past. Like this is still going. Yeah. And. India, there are several nuns who have come forward with allegations against a bishop, including one nun who states that she was raped 13 times over two years. Um, And so that's causing there's the eye of the church in the world is right there right now. But this is a global problem is what the pope and women religious are saying. Yeah. And it's a global problem. And it shows the way that um, clericalism and the imbalance of power can lead to the abuse of not only children, which we've you know seen a ton in the last few years, um, but vulnerable women as well. What's our next story, Ashley? 
Our next story comes from Alabama, where a death row inmate, uh, Dominique Ray, um, was executed on February 7th after the Supreme Court denied taking up his case. There had been a challenge against it because Mr. Ray is a Muslim and he had requested that an imam be present when he was killed. The Supreme Court uh, denied the request to stop the execution, saying that he had filed the request too late. Too late. It was a freaking technicality. Yeah. So they totally ignored the religious liberty merits of the case um, and just said that it was a, a technicality that this man had to die without the re- spiritual guide that he wanted next right. to Right, and he was told that only prison employees, which included a Christian chaplain, could be at his execution for safety reasons. Yeah, and the U.S. bishops have uh, condemned this case. He not only, I mean, they're against the death penalty regardless, but they also said that Mr. Ray bore the further indignity of being refused spiritual care in his last moments of life in violation of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and Alabama law. Yeah, and this is, I think, in my mind, a clear, like, religious liberty discrimination. But also, I think anytime you try to, like, unpack, like, the what's the ethical way to execute someone, it just sort of shows the monstrosity of the entire system. Yep. What's our next story, Olga? So last week during his flight back to Rome from his papal trip to Abu Dhabi, Pope Francis stated that the Vatican is always available to assist diplomatically in Venezuela, but that such negotiations require both sides to ask for help. Um, So before um, we kind of break this down, we decided to get into what's happening in Venezuela right now. Yes. So this has been a long um a long time crisis. Uh, in 2013, Nicolas Maduro uh, became the president of Venezuela, succeeding Hugo Chavez. And since that time, the economic and social situation in Venezuela has kind of been in free fall. The price of oil went down, there's hyperinflation, and now uh, over three million people have fled the country because they can't support themselves. Yeah, and so he was reelected last May, and on January 10th of this year, he was sworn in for a second term, but those elections have been highly contested. Correct. Um, Juan Guaido, who is the head of the National Assembly, claims that not only did Maduro rig the election, but that he should be removed and Guaido placed as the temporary president. Um, And he said that he would only be the president until future elections are held. So since last month, on January 21st, when he was sworn in, at least 40 people have died and hundreds have been arrested during protests against Maduro. Yeah. Um, And so as the situation, it's still kind of in flux. But right now, a lot of countries have recognized Juan Guaido as the rightful interim president. um, And they're was hopes in the in Venezuela that the Vatican might step in and mediate the situation. Yeah. And so part of trying to claim power when there's a legitimacy crisis is getting world leaders to acknowledge you as the rightful president. And as you mentioned, Guaido sent a delegation to the Vatican to see if Pope Francis would do that. And there was some news just yesterday about uh, what the delegation came away with at the Vatican. Correct. And member from Guaido's delegation told journalists that the Vatican supports these new elections happening in Venezuela. So they stopped short of recognizing Guaido as... Which the United States has done, and a lot of Latin American countries have done. And it's notable that the Vatican hasn't. Yes, but they... So they stopped short of doing that, but they did, at least according to Guaido's delegation, say that they supported new elections. But we brought this because... It's sort of an interesting wrinkle to think that the Vatican as it has anything to say in something like this. So why is this state? It's a very it's a country, right? The Vatican is, but a very small one with no military. Um, why are why are countries often going to them to solve diplomatic crises? Well, I think what I mean, it, they are kind of politically neutral, like they don't, they don't have an army. Um, they're not going to invade anyone, but they are they are seen as some uh 
a state with very strong moral grounding, um, with a lot of moral authority in the world. You know, an or- a country or an organization like the church with one billion people is going to uh, have influence in many parts of the world. Yeah, right. especially Latin America. Agreed. And the Pope and the Vatican have a history of getting involved diplomatically. We saw this in Cuba and during the peace talks in Colombia. Yeah, and this work, this is messy work, um, but I think it's really important work for the Vatican to be involved in. Um, and we al- we often aren't seeing what the va- Vatican is doing. This is sensitive work, so it's done behind closed doors. Um, but I think we are grateful that it does happen. What's next, Zach? So our next story, Lent is around the corner, and so... Uh, I know it's hard to believe we're just getting into ordinary time. Why is everyone trying to rob ordinary time (laughs) from me? It's like, you know, the stores are putting up the lens stuff already. All right, bad jokes. Um, But uh, one 12-year-old girl who's part of the organization One Million Dollar Vegan has written an open letter to Pope Francis to challenging him to abstain from all animal products during Lent. And if he does that, they will donate $1 million to a charity or charities of his choice. I love this. I This girl has so much spunk and <laughs> like who's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to challenge the Pope. Um, but I think it'd be a great thing. And it's very in line um, with things that Pope Francis has written in his uh, environmental encyclical, Laudato Si, which talks about uh, the need to care for the environment and our common home. And cutting out meat products is one way you can do that. And we know that a lot of people are asking different things of the Pope all the time. Uh, but we hope that this is something that he considers. So what's our next story, Ashley? Uh, our next story is actually a conversation that's been going on on our the Jesuitical Facebook page. Um, one of our listeners raised the question, do you have an obligation to belong to your local parish? Um, and it sparked a lot of good conversations. So we thought we would bring that conversation on, Mike. Uh, what do you guys think? So I thought this was a, a really interesting discussion. I used to think that you had to be tied to your local parish. I thought, you know, you want to build a church community, you want to build a community in your home, and that has to happen if you go to your local church. And I moved last year, um, and I was very committed to getting involved in my parish or or attending my local parish, Um, but then I wasn't feeling fulfilled, and I left the Bronx, and now I go to churches in Harlem. Um, So I, in the past six to eight months, I've actually grown away from this idea that you have to only attend your local parish. No, no, and I totally get the impulse, and I have a similar experience to you. When I first moved to New York, I was like, all right, I'm not just going to be this guy who, like, doesn't, you know, moves to a neighborhood, but, like, grocery stops at Whole Foods and, you know, goes to church somewhere else. I'm going to be really rooted in this community and contribute to it. Uh, But for me at that time, that meant going to uh, Mass uh, in Creole um, and like sort of sitting through like a two hour long mass sometimes in a language I couldn't really understand. And so that for me was a huge challenge. And I kind of like made a decision that if I was going to be doing ministry like at work, Mm -hmm. that I needed sort of a spiritual home away from work where I was, you know, just kind of having my needs met. What about you, Ashley? I, so I, I do definitely see the value um, in having some, Bit, uh, like stability at your parish. I don't think it necessarily has to be the one down the road from you. And this is like a unique, uh, unique New York problem <laughs> that we have so many options. Um, in my case, I I found I found a parish in New York that I really liked pretty early on when I moved here over uh, five years ago. Um, and it's kind of like influenced when I've moved, I've moved to be within, you know, walking distance of that church because it's been an I, I feel like I'm an, a part of that community. I really value what I get out of it. Um, so I do think like one, once you do find a spiritual community that, 
you know, fits your needs um, and nourishes you, um, sticking with it and contributing to it is is an important part of being a Catholic. Yeah, and it's I challenge you a little bit. It's not just a New York problem. It's New York. It's unique to New York that we have a lot of churches. Like I can throw a rock and hit four from my apartment, but. I, I was really inspired by the responses in the Facebook group. You had people saying that they would drive 40 minutes, even going out of state to find a parish that was meeting their needs where they felt welcomed. And I that's what I my one contribution to the thread was like, I think sometimes older adults are like, man, why, why aren't young people engaged in the church? And I'm like, I just want to show them conversations like yeah. this. And mm-hmm. I'm like, they're wrestling with super hard questions and they feel torn in so many different ways. And all they want is a community, whether they want to build that community or be welcomed by a community. So stay at it. It's worth it. Joining us today in studio is Maggie Van Dorn. She is the host and executive producer of Deliver Us, a new podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Welcome to Jesuitical, Maggie. Thank you. It's really, really good to be here. We're very excited to have you in studio. Um, So first question, why did you want to make this podcast? And was it a direct response to last year's Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report? It was a direct response to uh, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report that we all read about in the summer of 2018. Um, I was horrified and sickened when the first wave of the sexual abuse crisis hit in 2002. Um, I was 16. And um, like a lot of people at that time, I thought about the abuse crisis as something distant. Um, That being said, the pastor of my church came forward in 2002 and said that he had um, sexually abused or, or crossed the boundaries of a teenage boy 14 years prior. And so it was a, it was a really strange combination of um, of realizing that the abuse was very close to home. Um, I wasn't particularly close to this pastor, um, but I think a lot of people in our community still continued to psychologically distance ourselves from the abuse crisis at large. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fast forward 16, 17 years later, when the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report came out, I was looking at this as an adult, as someone who had studied religion and was really thinking critically about how I, as a lay Catholic, could respond to this crisis. Yeah, yeah so and what were some of the—you said the new questions came up. What what were those questions? Yeah, Um I think the biggest question was, what has the church done since 2002? I had been involved in Catholic ministry, so I knew that there were safe environment trainings. Um, but the Dallas Charter was not a part of my vocabulary. Right. It just wasn't. I think that's common. Yeah, I don't think most mm-hmm. people could have referenced that, even those who have sat through like the Virtus training or the safe environment training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so as a result, I really just didn't have a strong sense of what the church had, had done. And so when you're reading the grand jury report, although most of the cases are decades old, you know, that they're coming from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it it hits you like it just happened, like it's brand new. And there was honestly a part of me that wondered to what extent it was still happening. And I think that's because after 2002, I'm not sure we invested enough in explaining all the changes that we made or sort of asking the right questions, which is why I was so excited to see this podcast try and do that. Uh, We're going to start with just a clip from the first episode. 
I will go in a Catholic church only for weddings and funerals. I still have my faith in God. I still have my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have any faith whatsoever in the institution or church. I do indeed consider myself Catholic. And at the same time, I'm disgusted and frustrated. He molested me, he molested my siblings, and I haven't seen him in 30 years. And so I followed him upstairs to the rectory where he lived, and he closed the door behind me, and my life took a different turn. In the seminary, the attitude was very much, these are some priests from the 50s and 70s that messed up, but it's not really a risk anymore. I think the challenge for Catholics is how do we still be part of, should we still be part of, should we still love this community despite its flaws? So just from that sort of opening montage trailer, it's clear that you've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people with varying relationships to the church. Uh, Why was that important to you to get voices in and out of the church, sort of directly involved with the crisis, indirectly involved with the crisis? Yeah. Um, The most important voices that I wanted on this podcast were those of survivors. Mm -hmm. And so you do hear that um, again and again, and might be quite obvious, but for decades, the church did not listen to survivors and did not listen in a very public way. And so to recenter the voices of those survivors in Deliver Us was probably my greatest priority. But Deliver Us doesn't just dwell in the despair and the agony and the frustrations of this crisis, of which there are plenty, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is fundamentally hopeful. Um, And that hope is, is grounded for me in all of the amazing work that people are doing Mostly the laity, but uh, but theologians, um, people in Catholic ministry, people at a very local parish level. We hear from experts who have been covering this crisis for the past 17 years. Um, and yeah, so I think those voices offer a way forward. And I and I am really careful when, when trying to describe what that looks like, um, because I don't think that there is one cure-all or sure. one perfect solution or one answer, um, which is why you hear so many different voices. Yeah. One thing that really stuck out to me and I found very relatable in the first episode is the way you describe how there's there's that church. There's the church that allowed all of those people to be abused, abused them, covered up the abuse. Um, but then you also have the your, what you experienced b- before this came out as like the real church, which was the church that taught you like how to quote care unquote for the, real church. The, right? Yeah, quote yes. unquote real church that taught you to care for the poor and the vulnerable. Um, and so after the Pennsylvania grand jury report, coming out, you you had to reconcile these two churches. Is that what you were trying to do through this podcast? And you feel like you got, did you get any closer to doing that? Yeah. It's a weird thing to be confronted with this kind of violence in your own faith community. I think for a long time, you know, like we've all been living in the wake of the abuse crisis. Um, so for a long time, I really did not identify with the church that perpetuated these crimes and covered them up. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead, much closer to home, I had a really amazing 
nurturing Catholic community, um, both in in my immediate family. I also went to Santa Clara University, which is a wonderful Jesuit school, and just have so many good friends and people that I've been in ministry with who are doing the work of the gospel and who represent the face of Christ to me in the most daily and palpable of ways. And so for me, that was the church. And I think for so many Catholics, that is not the face of the church to them, that the face of the church has become like the the ugliest thing that we've seen in the headlines, whether whether it was happening at their parish or whether it was how they saw their own church represented in the news. So you talk with people um, who feel like they can't in good conscience stay in the Catholic Church. Um, you you talk about how you, you do stay and you wrestle with that. Um, but what what have you learned from the people who who have left and haven't haven't looked back? Mm-hmm. Um. One of the people that we speak to is Melinda Henneberger, and she wrote this article for USA Today about why she decided to leave the Catholic Church. Um, She had been a Vatican correspondent for the New York Times. Um, She had been in Catholic journalism for years and years. And I guess what I have learned, I think, most from her story is that people do not make the decision to leave this church lightly. And that it is something they anguish over. And that often when people do make the decision to step aside, they're often doing it, I think, for their own sense of spiritual flourishing, perhaps, you know, that it's it's really difficult to to stay in a church and to maintain a relationship with Christ um, when you're angry at the bishops. Do you think do you think there is like, I don't know. People who do stay, despite everything we know, like, do we have a responsibility or do we owe anything to the people who who have left who feel like they can't be a part of this community anymore? Is it okay? Like, can you just be a Catholic who doesn't think about it and has your yeah. has your faith community that nourishes you and you leave it at that? What I hope Deliver Us does is give people a little bit more space to consider this topic prayerfully, contemplatively, um, critically, and to still have hope. Um, because I, I, I suspect that part of the reason we don't want to continue to return to this very dark subject is because it feels hopeless at times. So I, I completely empathize with those who, who don't want to spend much more time talking about this. Um, and yet I think that we have to, yeah. we have to in order to really hear what <laughs> we have to, because victims don't have the choice. Right. That's the thing, you know, yeah. like victims are traumatized for the rest of their lives. I don't think the church has had a really truthful understanding of what survivors go through um, and how long it can affect you in your life and your relationships. And so, um, yeah, I think we have to we have to listen to survivors. And then secondly, if we want to make the church into what it claims to be, if we want to see healing, then we have to be committed to the long haul. I think Maggie, one of one of the things that makes this especially exhausting is that I feel like I personally have encountered so many people who are outside of the of Catholic spaces who have just kind of 
these misconceptions about the church and about what's causing the crisis, you know. And inside the church. Exactly. I know a lot of my secular friends are just like, you know, well, the problem is celibacy or the problem is gay priest. Um, and it, that can be very frustrating. And and I know you've dealt with that. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the some of the myths that you were able to discount about the sexual abuse crisis while while making Deliver Us? Mm. Um, so in episode two, um, we dive deep into the causes of sexual abuse. Um, what 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 would drive somebody to commit sexual abuse? And as you've rightly stated, um, the most often cited reasons are celibacy and gay priests. Um, what we found when you say cited, you mean not necessarily in research, but that's in a good terms point. of yeah. yes. Um, I think yeah, this is this is not backed by research. So the John Jay College of Criminal Justice was commissioned by the U.S. bishops to do this four-year extensive study in the United States. Um, and I think it's, it's it's not a spoiler to say that they, they did not find that celibacy and homosexuality are contributing factors to this abuse crisis. Now, that being said, I think it's still fair to raise questions because we're all trying to get an accurate diagnosis. Um, And so we also speak with three men who went through seminary formation. Two went on to become a priest and one didn't. Um, And we talk to them about what it's like to live a celibate life. Um, And I think what we find is that although celibacy and homosexuality are not contributing factors to sexual abuse of minors. The church has not always dealt well with human sexuality and hasn't hasn't really prepared a lot of men in formation um, for living a chaste celibate life. And I, I don't think that should be terribly surprising. I think anyone has grown up who has grown up Catholic has also become painfully aware of the shortcomings of our conversations around human sexuality. I think that, and this is something that Pope Francis said in in the letter that he released after the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, that every baptized Catholic has a role to play in the ecclesial and social change of the church. And not only do we have a role to play, but I think we have a lot of talents to bring to the table. Um, and in in my particular instance, I have this background in podcasting, and so I wanted to gather the tools of audio storytelling um, to respond to this crisis. But for a lot of people, they might bring a corporate perspective or insight from counseling and psychology. And so I think that the laity is actually really equipped um, to respond to this crisis, not to clean up the crisis. I think that's important to say, but um, to respond with so many resources um, and to be a part of the healing of the church. Yeah. Well, I'll say it, it gives me hope that there, there are Catholics like you who are using your gifts um, to, to wrestle with these questions mm-hmm. and to raise up the voices of survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important. So thank you for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Maggie. And I, I'm sure our listeners are going to love it, too, because they're also on this journey um, the same way we are, the same way you are. Um, and one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not Catholic, who would it be and why? Okay. So this is I've, I've been thinking about this question. <laughs> um, there are so many good people in my life. There's like an abundance of saintly people, right? Um 
So and you're gonna pass over all of I'm them gonna for. <laughs> I, I could Sorry, tell Mom. this. I could tell this was an apology to everyone you know. It's true. Um, I would canonize uh, Khalil Gibran, uh, the Lebanese American poet uh, who wrote The Prophet, among many other great works. And I would canonize him, especially now, (laughs) um, because I think that there's a false dichotomy um, that people make between artists and justice advocates. At least that's something that that I've encountered. And I have always leaned a little bit more on like the romantic artistic side. And I have spent so much time just like reading the mystics of the Catholic Church. And this podcast in many ways is on the justice side of things, um, looking at really hard, gritty, gruesome facts. Um, But I think that the poetry of Khalil Gibran and and so many artists like him, but um, this poetry is my why, and it it paints a picture of the fullest expression of humanity and the fullest expression of I think what our church could look like, and it it motivates and inspires me to see to it that the church becomes that or or at least you know on the way to becoming that and khalil is also a marionite catholic that's right yes that's right so he, he could is. be very well be on his way yeah um though so i <laughs> i have to tell you I, I was reading some of like his his life biography and i don't know if he was saintly i don't know if he was saintly and <laughs> all right like, we and don't I need to get into that <laughs> yeah all right. but i think but it's it's interesting. Sometimes I just want to canonize the work of someone, like mm-hmm. include it in the canon of um, Catholic thought, yeah. um, rather than necessarily the canonize person. the person. Um, but maybe that's because I've been working in the abuse crisis for so long that I'm like, oh gosh, we don't know, we don't know what anyone yeah, did. anyone has done. Yeah. Well, Maggie, thank you again for the work that you're doing. And again, the podcast is Deliver Us, and you can find that wherever you're getting podcasts. Um, And it launched this week. So go get episode one now. Thanks so much, Maggie. Thank you, Maggie, for having me. Now it's time for some housekeeping. We are asking you one thing this week, and that is to listen to Deliver Us, um, Maggie and America Media and Spoke Studios' amazing new podcast. Uh, you can subscribe to it in your podcast app and learn more about it at www.deliveruspodcast.org. A lot of the same people that help make Jesuitical have worked super hard. Eloise, Father Eric, and so many others have worked really hard to make this podcast a success. And it's I'm, I'm really grateful that America and Spoke are taking on this topic because, I mean, I think if you've listened to the show, you've known that uh, our own faith was really challenged Mm -hmm. by the sexual abuse crisis. And so to see another Catholic young adult get into it in a a really honest way and thorough way um, is really nourishing for me. And so I think it will be for you, too. So that's Deliver Us. You can download it wherever you get podcasts. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a consolation this week. Um, our listeners might be surprised to hear that I was in Brooklyn this past weekend. Um, and One time I'm out of town. I know. I know. <laughs> and it is a surprise because it's basically like 
very far. Very far from, from the, the Bronx. Bronx. Sorry, I forgot to add that. <laughs> I live very far from Brooklyn. But anyways, um, I got to spend the time with um, one of my co-hosts and his fiance. Um, and I was able to talk to her about wedding planning and things like that and just see her interact with Zach. And just seeing them in that moment, it just kind of really grounded me to and really consoled me to see a lot of the emotions and insecurities that I share with my fiance. Um, This woman is also sharing with her fiance. um, And it was just really wonderful to see her going through that. Um, And I just really deeply saw God in that moment and in this couple. Um, So thank you for allowing me to see all of this. That's really affirming. I think we forget sometimes that like, that's what marriage is supposed to be. Like you are like your vocation is supposed Mm -hmm. to be like a light to other people. And I don't know. I feel like I don't tell couples that enough. So thank you for telling me and Amanda. What do you have, Zach? I, also have a consolation. Uh, so this is based on my consolation from last week where I uh, mentioned that I was going to be praying more about gratitude this week, which I've been trying to do um, on the subway, um, when I wake up, uh, when I go to bed. And that was actually a super useful thing this week because my birthday was yesterday. And uh, sometimes when birthdays come around, uh, I think we, or at least I, tend to uh, evaluate my life in ways that are not super charitable to myself. Like, oh, are you, are you doing enough things? Is your career far enough along? Uh, and instead of listening to the evil spirit, praying on the things that I'm grateful for allowed my attention to be directed toward the ways that God is present in my life. And that's allowed me to pay attention to the way that God was present in my life this week. So that's that great. is my consolation. I always cry on my birthday. I need to start doing that instead. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so it is not just me that no. does that. Okay. Good. Well. What do you have, Ashley? Uh, I also have a consolation. Uh, so this past weekend, I was down in Virginia visiting my family, um, and I found myself having like this really... Um, I don't know, deep and challenging conversation with my dad, which is not something like I always do. Um, and, you know, we ended up on the topic of abortion, which is kind of weird. But he mentioned to me that he had never really cared about abortion as like a political issue um, until he had seen me, his first child born. Um, it was such like a vulnerable and raw thing for my dad to say, which I don't hear a lot from him. Um, and so it was just like this really moving moment for me that showed that like, you know, as as I grow up, my relationship with my dad can still still grow and challenge me um, and nourish me in new ways. Um, and so I think I, I have God to thank for continuing to work in that relationship. Uh, so that's where, where I saw God. Mm, You're going to make home. me cry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something about home. Uh, yeah. I will now get us out of here. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Brandon Sanchez. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Liv B, Ryan Jordan, Meg and Zach, I'm going to let you take this one. Yes, shout out to 173759394736282947. That's quite the username. (laughs) Nice. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.